Hello, my name is Adam Eason and welcome to episode 111 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again in my own highly biased opinion I think I have an incredible show lined up for you today. In a short while I'll be sharing with you this week's interview and discussion all rolled into one with my guest Donald Robertson. Then we'll have this week's hypnosis in the news stories examining the media where hypnosis is featured and I'm offering up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis gets portrayed in the media. Um, um, we'll, we'll then round things off with this week's hypnosis evidence-based factoid straight after that before I bid you farewell for another week. As I say at the beginning of every Hypnosis Weekly episode, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friends friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub, and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with Related links are posted in the episode notes at section at iTunes and on the episodes page of the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. If you enjoy this podcast, please do go give us a favourable rating and even an, uh, a review at iTunes. Um, it's greatly appreciated. It takes just a few seconds um, and a couple of clicks, um, um, and it really gives us a, a you know it really helps us out. Um, so on to today, on to today. Um, um, first of all, today then we have this week's interview and discussion um, all in one um, um, with Donald Robertson. Um, I, I, I'm going to be honest, this was, this was a, a, a bit of a tough recording for me, to be honest, um, and, and I felt a bit anxious going into it, simply because I hold Donald in such high regard. Um, um, I, I attended a training course with him about 15 years ago when he ran a college, um, I'm a hypnosis training college in London. Um, today he resides in Nova Scotia in Canada. Um, um, I, I'd been a hypnotherapist for a fair few years already and, and was establishing myself and my career and this CPD course that I attended it was a conversion course that I attended with Donald um, it was a massive game changer for me um, um, every day that I spent in class um, with Donald my, my jaw dropped um, um, I learned more and I was just taken in and taken aback by by what I was learning um, and, and I simply couldn't understand why nobody had told me so many of these things that I was learning you know but before what, what why none of that had been taught to me before and, and it got me on the road where I started examining research, where I was questioning my previous learning. I was becoming familiar with, with the evidence base. Um, and much has changed for me since then. And I follow a very different path than the one that I was on. And it's one that I'm really happy and I'm really grateful for. Um, and, and I owe so much of that to Donald. Really, I do. 
Um, over the years, he, he's, he's continued to have an important impact upon me personally and professionally. Um, I, I bought every book that he's, he's written. Um, I, you know, I read his articles and I became interested in stoicism thanks to his ongoing influence. Um, I, I find him to be incredibly engaging and, and you know, such a brilliant mind. Um, I mean, he used to be a psychotherapist and hypnotherapy trainer in London. Today, he, he primarily writes, creates online courses and is a major force in the field of Stoic philosophy and has been instrumental in the, in the sort of surge of popularity and interest in that topic in recent years. Um, um, so let's get on with it, shall we? For now, get comfy, my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea. Enjoy this week's interview. <music> So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to be joined this week's guest, the one and only Mr. Donald Robertson. Don, welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me on. So, so first of all, let's learn a little bit about you. Um, how, do, how do you develop uh, uh, any kind of interest in the hypnosis and hypnotherapy field? Tell us a bit about your background. Well, I mean, to be honest, it started when I was pretty young. I was probably about 15 years old and... Uh, Strangely, it started because my father was a Freemason. Like a lot of the uh, the kids in my hometown, our, our fathers all seem to be Freemasons. It's a kind of traditional <laughs> thing in, in yeah. that part of Scotland. And he left behind some books that were kind of about Freemasonic symbolism and mysticism. And that got me reading books about religion. Uh, then I got into Gnosticism. Then I got into philosophy and reading about world religions, Hinduism and Buddhism and Quickly, I started reading books about meditation, and that got me into reading kind of stuff about New Age mysticism and so on when I was 15, 16, 17. And I started to learn about different psychological techniques, any type of psychological self-help, really, uh, yogic meditation techniques and stuff like that. And that kind of led me into learning about self-hypnosis. And that was kind of how it all started, really. And then I started to get more and more into the study of psychology and eventually learning about counselling and psychotherapy and hypnotherapy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and just just tell me a little bit uh, um, about sort of where you're at with hypnosis, so to speak. You know, is there a particular definition that you that that, that rings truest to you, or um, 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 you know, is there a way in which you know when you when you were doing hypnotherapy, um, uh-huh. um, is there a way in which you used to explain it to your to to, to your clients, your patients, or is is there an alternative way that you would explain it if somebody had cornered you in the kitchen at a party, for example? Yeah, I mean, basically, I. I'm a non-state theorist and I adopt what I would describe as a cognitive behavioral model of hypnosis. So I mainly, I, I employ a cognitive behavioral approach to therapy. I combine hypnotherapy with CBT. And in addition to the practice, I try to adopt a consistent theoretical approach. So a cognitive behavioral theory of hypnosis as well. And so if I was going to explain it to someone at a party, I'd say that all hypnosis is self-hypnosis and Basically, it's about adopting the right attitude, an attitude of expectation and focused attention. And the irony of that is, you know, one of my interests has always been the history of psychology and the history of hypnosis. And I noticed early on that a lot of people in the hypnotherapy field don't really know that much about James Braid or Bernheim or the the pioneers of hypnosis. And I, I edited the complete writings of James Braid. 
And uh, I did early on quite a lot of research into Braid's views. It was Braid that really discovered hypnosis and distinguished it from mesmerism. And, and Braid was a scientific skeptic. And he forwarded, essentially, there's elements of state theory to what he did, but really what he did was to distinguish hypnosis from mesmerism by forwarding uh, a self-hypnosis model of, of hypnosis. Mm. You know, Braid thought that it was something that the subject was really doing to themselves, whereas the mesmerists thought that you are, you know, there's no, there's no such expression as self-mesmerism, self-mesmerism really, right? The mm. mesmerist thought it was very much something that the operator was doing to the subject. And Braid was the first person to really fully question that and say, no, it's all going on in the subject's mind. It has to do with imagination and what he called lively faith or expectation. So I think of Braid as a kind of precursor uh, of the modern non-state or cognitive behavioral theories of hypnosis. And so I view this as a kind of traditional way of understanding hypnosis, but also a kind of uh, one that's become popular again since the, the 1950s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I um, I recommend to uh, I mean uh, the, the the core text for my own cognitive behavioural um, hypnotherapy trainings is, is is your book on the subject. Um, and and you know for, for, for anybody listening, the the the, the works of of James Braid, the the book that you put together there is 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 fascinating stuff. Um, um and you mentioned Braid being an influence, if you like. Um, um. And, and you mentioned Bernheim as well. Um, 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 were there some other major influences to you and um, for you within the hypnosis and hypnotherapy field? Were there some books that taught you yeah. most, some teachers that were more influential upon you? So I could talk all day about this, right? Because I was yeah. a bit of a geek about the history of the subject. So, I mean, Braid in particular, I would say Braid's writings aren't the most accessible. Neurohypnology like his most famous book, actually, is probably his least accessible work. And his, his later writings are a lot easier to read, a lot more interesting, but they're less well-known. But I, I'm very keen on Braid. But of the early hypnotists, Bernheim is probably the one that people find kind of more accessible today, I think. And so Bernheim was a big influence on me as well. And also following on from Bernheim, Emile Coué, who's famous for auto-suggestion and self-hypnosis, mm. And honestly, in many ways, Kuei massively underestimated as a, a precursor, yet again, of, of cognitive behavioral approaches. So Kuei thought very much, I mean, he, he, Kuei called his approach conscious auto-suggestion. And the very name that he chose, he was trying to directly counter two of what he considered to be the most common misconceptions about hypnotism. So people thought hypnotism was a state of unconsciousness or sleep or oblivion. And Curie said, no, it's a conscious state. So he was going to call his approach conscious auto-suggestions. He wanted to emphasize that it was all about the power of suggestion, and it was primarily something that subject did to themselves. So in the very title that he chose of his approach, he's kind of preempting um, social, psychological, and cognitive behavioral theories of hypnosis. So Curie, I think, was a big influence. And also the way he worked. Curie's workshops were all about getting people to do what we would call today socialization techniques. Mm -hmm. So he taught people to do little suggestion experiments. So that they, and by the way, I was going to say the other thing I liked about Braid was his emphasis on the idiomotor response as a kind of acid test of hypnosis. So for these guys, like hypnosis was all about learning to do observable tests and then to infer from that what the right attitude or state of mind was in order to make your arm go rigid or to make your finger twitch involuntarily or whatever. And so Kui's workshops were all about getting people to do these experiments. 
And then, you know, he said, look, if you can figure out how to do this, then you, you can infer from that what the right frame of mind is in order to increase your suggestibility. And you'll realize it's mainly about thinking positively, being confident and focusing your attention and stuff like that. You know, so it was yeah. a, that kind of orientation. It's kind of like a bottom up approach, as it were. Yeah. So rather than just kind of theorizing, say, well, do this. And once you figure out how to do this, you'll know what hypnosis feels like. But also Dave Elman um, is, you know, I've got mixed feelings about Dave Elman. So I think a lot of the stuff that he said is wrong. And a, a lot of his, his therapeutic techniques are, are, are overly simplistic and kind of dated. But there are a lot of good... Elman also put a lot of emphasis on suggestion tests and popularized a, a simple approach to hypnotic induction, which you know yeah. I think is uh, is very important. But then guys like Barber and Sarbin, the pioneers of the kind of modern non-state approach, Weisenhofer and Hilgard as well, Irving Kirsch, like, you know, still around today, um, Stephen J. Lynn, and also in a way, you know, kind of more indirectly, the pioneers of cognitive therapy like Beck and Ellis had an influence on the way that I think about the actual practice of therapy and hypnosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you also know, what, I should mention uh, Gil Boyne. Yeah, I was, just about to, I was just about to say that because you were friends with him. Yeah, Gil was a good friend of mine. And also, we, Gil and I didn't agree on everything. You know, one of the first things I said to Gil was, look, I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist, you know, and like you, you take a, a different uh, a, a kind of modality of therapy. It's more of a regression style of therapy. But, you know, it's funny. It's like someone, maybe a conservative and a socialist being friends or whatever. You know, yeah. we came from very different perspectives on therapy, but we got on very well. Gil was a good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's really encouraging and refreshing to hear that because I think, um, um, you know, but but both both here historically, there's been a lot of sort of famous feuding. But I think um, um, for me, uh, I'm one of the one of the sort of central ideas behind this podcast was was as much as possible to embrace as much of the. The, the, the sort of differences within the hypnotherapy field as possible because within the front line and on forums and things like that there's so much bickering and and it's it's really lovely to hear you know two two prominent people um, um who who had strong str strong stances uh, still getting along and being really good friends um <clears throat> i mention you a lot in my classrooms because um, um, uh, it was you that, uh, that, that that inspired me. You probably don't know this, um, but it was you that inspired me to uh, to go and get myself some surgical clamps um, yeah. and start and start sticking them to the back of my hand. And and the reason I did that is I'm because I sat in, I sat in a classroom <laughs> and watched you do it. I sat in a classroom and watched you do it, and I was thinking, you know, this is this is a great way for me to teach teach some of these skills and and, and to make sure that I demonstrate it myself. And spent you know a, a best part of eighteen months uh, managing to get it to to stay on the back of my hand. Um, yeah. So. So, so um, it, it's a really impressive application of hypnosis that that, that, uh -huh. that, that I that I found that, that I witnessed that, that really int really interested me and and became inspirational for me. Um, what was one of the most impressive applications of hypnosis that, that you have witnessed? Well, I'm going to digress a little bit before I answer that question. Yeah, sure. I just wanted to say I forgot to mention someone. Yeah. Uh, who was another friend of Gil Boyne, uh, which is John Butler, who I think maybe uh, you, yes. you, you might know as well. Yes. It was John, the, who's an expert on surgical hypnosis and pain control. Um, he did an amazing uh, Channel 4 documentary about hypnosurgery. Yeah, the like hypnosurgery. Years ago. Yeah. You can still get that online. It's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen about uh, hypnosis and pain control. And it was John that taught me how to, to use Alice clamps for pain control. 
Uh, I think Hellman used to do that as well in his demonstrations. And, and also, just to kind of call back to something we mentioned earlier, all that stuff about QA and getting people to actually do suggestion tests and experiments in order to learn about hypnosis. When you use Alice clamps for pain control, you know, it takes it. Some people get it immediately. Other people can take weeks of practice to get it. But once you figure out how to do it, you know, it's a really tangible outcome. And after a while, you realize, I think, that it, it's simpler than, you know, people might have previously assumed. And you get faster at doing it. Like, it becomes like you almost don't really need to do anything. You just give yourself a signal and you go into the right state of, state of mind and you can put the clamps on or whatever. It's, you know, it can take a while for some people to get there. Other people can yeah. do it quickly. But after a while, you realize it's just about snapping into a confident, focused frame of mind where you expect to be able to do this. And, you know, like, that's... The, the end result is a lot simpler than a lot of the books in hypnosis kind of make it out to be. Yeah. And the pain control is a good demonstration of that. I always say, like, self-hypnosis isn't that much of a spectator sport. You know, stage hypnosis makes it into a spectator sport. But a lot of what's going on in therapy isn't all that visible from the outside. It's just someone sitting in a chair, you know, listening to stuff and maybe talking a bit. But pain control demonstrations are very visible. And so, you know, it, it might seem like kind of showing off or, or whatever in a way, a bit kind of like stagey, but it, people learn from those demonstrations. Out of all of the things I did over the years, you know, class students would be dozing off in the class sometimes, but if you get clamps out or pack your arm in ice or do one of these kind of demonstrations, everybody suddenly pays attention and people <laughs> yeah. feel inspired and they think, wow, like that's a, like a real visible thing that's happening that's, that's not normal, you know, and, and I could learn how to do that. And uh, and once people, it, it shows the power of social learning as well in hypnosis, which Kui understood. You know, he used to get people to learn in groups because Kui realized if one person in the group can do it, everyone else becomes more confident that they can do it as well. Mm. And that's an important. Braid knew about this as well. Braid used to hypnotize people in front of an audience, and he knew that if he hypnotized one person, that the next person would be easier to hypnotize, as every stage hypnotist knows. But in one-to-one -one hypnotherapy, we don't really get a chance to do that unless the hypnotist demonstrates something first. And then the client can get a little bit of confidence from thinking, well, the hypnotist just demonstrated pain control, so if he can do it, maybe, you know, that makes me more confident I could do it myself. It's a very powerful factor in hypnosis. The early hypnotists were very aware of, but modern hypnotists, I think, massively underutilize this power of uh, modeling, uh, coping and mastery or social learning or whatever you want to call it. Anyway, I digressed a bit. Yeah, um, yeah. You're asking me about dramatic demonstrations. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, Perhaps the most impressive application of hypnosis that you've witnessed. Yeah. And, you know, I, there's a paradox about that because like, every hypnotist witnesses lots of kind of miracle cures and people yeah, right. having profound mystical experiences. But I don't remember half of them because I always found they were the kind of least interesting parts of, of therapy, funnily, ironically. Mm. Um because you get clients that come in and you hypnotize them and they're suddenly cured of their problem because they're hyper-suggestible or whatever, you know, and they're, they're just ready to respond. Um, but in a way, I didn't think there was that much to learn from those clients. The, the, you know, they were kind of too easy to work with. You know, it was the, the, the ones I remember more are the clients that were more difficult and required more work to, to get a result from. And so, you know, you, you get those miracle cures that happen in one session and you'll hypnotize somebody. And I've had, a, I remember a guy once... Uh, I did an induction with him and I asked him to imagine the problem or whatever. And it's kind of like in that Robert De Niro film, is it? Uh, I can't remember which one it is. Like one of the De Niro films, yeah, I think he's talking to a psychiatrist or something. He says, you, you're good, you are. How did you do that? 
<laughs> and I'm thinking, I haven't done anything yet. But, <laughs> but the guy, I thought, should I tell him I haven't done anything yet? He seems to think he's cured, you know. But there, there are some people that will race ahead of you because they're so ready. And then, of course, you have to verify that and test it out and make sure it wasn't just a momentary thing. But there are 10, 15% of the population that are hyper-suggestible. And this is something that researchers in hypnosis are very confident about and that they think is a, a massively underestimated you know, factor in, in ordinary psychotherapy. So CBT practitioners are working away, doing conceptualizations, l treatment plans over multiple sessions, and 10 or 15% of their clients are so hyper-suggestible they could probably just do an induction and give them a few suggestions and most of their problem would be resolved in many mm. cases, yeah. you know, because not everyone is the same. Some people require a lot of work and planning and treatment and other people just require very simple intervention because they're ready for change and they're highly responsive. So we, we see a lot of those cases. And I've also, I've had clients reported really quite profound, you know, mystical experiences. And sometimes they're the clients that are into new age stuff. And sometimes they're not. They're just ordinary Joes. And when they're hypnotized, they, they say it was like a, a you know, cosmic experience for them and it's you know, changed their life and opened up their mind and they had some kind of mystical experience under hypnosis that was life-altering for them, you know, above and beyond the, the actual therapeutic goals. Mm. I suppose one of the, the tangible things I could say from my personal experience as well that occurs to me, and this is kind of a, a on a different note, is that my daughter, who's seven now, um, was born uh, with her mother using self-hypnosis uh, for pain control. So Mandy, her mother, didn't even take a paracetamol or an aspirin or anything. Um, she didn't have any Wonderful. pain control at all except, you know, just the, the self-hypnosis. Yeah. And pregnancy, you know, in some approaches there has to be preparation. Well, you know, you've got nine months to prepare. And it's at the forefront of your mind, uh, of a woman's mind when she's pregnant anyway. So in, in many ways, it's a, a situation that's very well suited to training in self-hypnosis. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she had a natural childbirth at home. Um, it was a back labor. So that's considered like, a little bit more painful, a little bit more difficult than normal. But she used self-hypnosis and she coped very well and she had negligible pain and discomfort. And, you know, we had a, a healthy baby. So I, I wrote that up as a case study in one of my books on my book in Resilience, actually, where I was thinking of examples for training and coping skills, and uh, I did a lot of research onto hip, the the you know the the studies that exist on hypnosis for childbirth at that time, and you know there's a lot of interesting uh, evidence out there you know, yeah. spanning you know the past century, really. You know the Russians were doing it at the start of the 20th century, collecting data on uh, hypnosis for pain painless childbirth. So yeah, that was a, for me a very personally kind of profound experience that I was able to to give that gift to my wife and uh, my daughter in that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that, that's lovely to hear. Um, um, so, so you know, a, a lot of people listening um, will, will know this. Um, um, so, so some may not. Um, that, that, that you have you have a, a, an interest, both both personal and professional in uh, within philosophy and and with with stoic philosophy in, in particular um, um, um and uh, just tell me a little bit about how that interest influenced or influences both not, not just your hypnotherapy work but also your cbt and and psychotherapy in general um i i think it'd be really useful to know how that how that influenced what you did and and and, and, and what you do yeah, well, I mean, I'll start off tell you know saying a little bit about 
how it began. I mentioned yeah. I was into all these different self-hypnosis and I was reading Freud when I was a teenager and just kind of looking around. I was probably a bit lost, you know, like a lot of teenagers kind of looking for something in life. And I always found it strangely frustrating that my, my interests were kind of fragmentary. So I was interested in psychology. I was interested in philosophy and I was interested in self-hypnosis and psychological personal development techniques. And I felt that these were kind of like three different but overlapping things. And then I studied philosophy at university in Aberdeen for four years. And by the end of it, I remember I was really trying to study phenomenology and existentialism and, uh, you know, guys like R.D. Lang and Binswanger, existential psychotherapists. So I was hopeful that that would be a way to bring at least philosophy and psychotherapy together. Yeah. And it, so I was really struggling to, to bring these interests together and unify them, and I, I couldn't quite do it. And then I kind of stumbled across the Stoics. Um, because Stoicism is one of the few major schools of ancient philosophy that isn't part of the standard philosophy degree curriculum. Like, I mean, you know, every philosophy student will know that, but but other people might not be aware no. of that. So it's, I, Stoics are a major school of philosophy. Yeah, you don't normally study them. Very few philosophy undergraduates would, would study the Stoics. And because what they did was to take Socratic philosophy and earlier philosophy and, and apply it in a practical way. But arguably, they didn't make any major theoretical innovations in philosophy. So they're kind of ignored by academic philosophers. So they're of more interest to, to psychotherapists, funnily enough. And so it was only after I graduated that I started reading Seneca, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and the, the other texts. Those are the three major sources today for Stoicism. Hmm. And there's a few other things like Cicero and stuff that speak to it. And I, I kind of, it was like a revelation to me because I immediately realized that Stoicism brought together the meditation stuff, psychology techniques that I was interested in, that it was relevant to psychotherapy, and that it was a, a branch of, of classical philosophy. And so, you know, I, I mean, people, again, probably won't realize that from Socrates onwards, philosophy was a way of life. You would know a philosopher if you saw one in the street because of the way that they dressed, the way that they behaved. The, the diet they followed, um, you know, the way that even the, the, the sleeping habits and so on would identify a philosopher, you know, like a member of a monastic order, for, for instance, you, mm. you would recognize different sects of philosophers, uh, depending on the way that they kept their beard or their hair or the way they dressed, for instance. And so philosophy was a way of life. Um, and philosophers had conceptualized it for, right from the Socrates, maybe even the pre-Socratics, very explicitly as a psychological therapy, a medicine for the mind. They actually call it therapeia, like therapy in Greek. So there's no question. They, they conceptualized it as a psychological therapy. There were many books about psychology as a therapy in the ancient world, and the Stoics were particularly the school of philosophy that prioritized this aspect of philosophy, the practical, psychological, psychotherapeutic dimension of philosophy. And so that was kind of what got me into Stoicism, and I realized that, that Stoic philosophy was the inspiration for cognitive therapy, mainly via Albert Ellis. Albert Ellis had been a psychoanalytic therapist. And like a lot of people by the 1950s, he was becoming, for a bunch of reasons I, I won't digress into, a, a lot of people were becoming very disillusioned with psychoanalytic therapy in the 1950s, um, sort of in the post-war period and onwards. And Ellis was one of those. And what he decided to do was kind of to, to reformulate his approach to psychotherapy from scratch. Like he, he was like, you know, this just isn't working for me. I'm going to start again from scratch. And he'd read Marcus Aurelius as a teenager, and he'd read Epictetus as well. Mm. And so he he was particularly struck by a famous quote from Epictetus, 
passage 5 in the Enchiridion, or the handbook of Epictetus, that says it's not things that upset us, but our judgments about them. And that, in a nutshell, is what we now call the cognitive model of emotion. The idea that it's not exclusively, but primarily our cognitions, our beliefs and thoughts that determine our emotional responses. And that's the basis of cognitive therapy. So Ellis built an approach called rational emotive behavior therapy, inspired primarily by this quote from Epictetus and other aspects of Stoicism. And so that quote became famous to all subsequent CBT practitioners, although they often didn't go back to the Stoics. They didn't know much more about Stoicism. So I saw that it was easy to integrate Stoicism and CBT because they were kind of cousins, or CBT is a descendant of Stoicism. And my first book on the subject was my attempt to review in detail all of the theoretical and practical similarities or parallels between ancient Stoicism and, and modern psychotherapy, particularly mm. REBT and CBT. So that bit's called the philosophy of cognitive behavioral therapy. And I'm, I'm actually just about to do the revised second edition of, of that book. Um, I'll be working on that over the next few months, actually. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, a you know, that, that, that's a that's a great book. Um, um, uh, I have a copy of it, and uh, it makes for some it makes for some some very interesting reading indeed. Um, 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 do, Don, do you think that, that hypnotherapists in general would benefit from a similar understanding um, 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 about subjects of, of philosophy and philosophical reasoning? Yeah, I'm, I mean, obviously I'm a bit biased in this respect, right? But I think, I think everybody <laughs> could, who works in therapy could benefit from learning about stoicism. And I'll tell you why. I just wrote an article, actually, that came out in the current edition of The Behaviour Therapist that, that tries to make this point. It's addressing cognitive behavioural therapists. So you know, I, I could make the same point to hypnotherapists as well. That, and, and I made the same point in the preface, actually, or the introduction to that book, that stoicism isn't a psychotherapy it, because it's, it's bigger than a psychotherapy. It contains a psychotherapy would be the more accurate way of putting it. Right. And sto- so stoicism is a, a philosophy of life. It's a permanent thing. It's like uh, Christianity or Marxism or, you know, it's a, a whole worldview and yeah. uh, outlook on life, a set of core values. And it, it contains a therapy within that, which, you know, was the, the inspiration for CBT. And one of the reasons I was drawn to it was that I was doing CBT and hypnotherapy. And like all therapists, I was using it for myself, right? But when I was using it for myself, it was kind of in a different way. Because CBT in particular is time-limited and goal-directed and diagnosis-specific. So, you you know, in CBT, you treat panic attacks, and then the therapy is over. Uh, there might be some maintenance stuff that you teach clients, but it's not intended to be a philosophy of life. And in fact, in some ways, that'd be antagon- antagonistic to the role of the therapist in certain regards, because we shouldn't be trying to indoctrinate the clients into a philosophy or a worldview or a set of values. Arguably, that kind of goes a bit beyond the, the neutrality of the, the therapist-client relationship. But Stoicism will brazenly go beyond that and say, look, let's, we'll take some of these same ideas and turn them into an entire philosophy of life. And if you're kind of willing to embrace cognitive therapy or a similar outlook as a whole outlook on life, then Stoicism gives you a, a way of making it something much bigger and more pervasive and, and permanent. So the other thing you could say about Stoicism is also CBT and hypnotherapy are mainly remedial in nature, not exclusively, but mainly so. So clients come along because of the nature of the therapist-client relationship, right? 
the, the client comes along and says they have a problem and the therapist says, what is the problem? And then they figure out a treatment plan together and they treat the plot problem and then therapy ends. But stoicism is meant to be more general than that. And it's also, rather than being remedial, although it does have remedial aspects, it's preventative. And we, you know, the cliche, as we all know, is prevention is better than cure. So I say that preventative approaches in mental health are kind of the holy grail of mental health in a way. And yeah. there's a bit of research on that now. We, we tend to refer to it as emotional resilience training in, in the field of psychology. So there are, a number, particularly for certain populations like school children or people in the military or carers, uh, for instance, people that are subject to a lot of stress or, or, or people earlier on in life, there's, a, there's you know, a, a number of large-scale research studies on the benefits of preemptive or preventative psychological skills training drawing on positive psychology and CBT and stuff like that mainly. And so what Stoicism does is provide something that's preventative and bigger and deeper in scope. And that appealed to me as a therapist because I thought all this therapy stuff is cool, but you know I'm kind of living it as my life day in, day out on an ongoing yeah. basis. So how yeah. can I take this kind of more goal-directed, more short-term stuff and turn it into something that makes sense as a more consistent like, you know, way of life? Stoicism seems to give an answer to that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, um, now, you, you <clears throat> we've mentioned a couple of your books, um, um, but, but you, you have a new book out. Um, 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 can you tell, us, tell me a little bit about it, how it came to be, what it's about, who it's for? Well, it's called How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, the Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. And, you know, I'd already written a book. Uh, that was like a, a sort of self-help type introduction to stoicism it's called stoicism and the art of happiness and that just went into a second edition recently actually the second edition just came out a few months ago but it's part of the hodos teach yourself series like so it's a very mm. simple highly structured it's all bullet points and call out boxes and stuff like that it's a simple introduction and so a publisher kind of approached me uh and a, a literary agent and said well, well you know throwing around this idea of writing another book on stoicism and I thought, well, I've already written an introduction to Stoicism. And there are a bunch of these books coming out now. There are lots of new books, great new books by uh, Massimo Pellucci, Chuck Chakrapani, um, uh, Ward Farnsworth brought out a really good book called The Practicing Stoic recently. Lots of good books that are introductions to Stoicism now. So I thought, I want to write something that will reach a wide audience, that will be accessible to everyone, and that will be like an introduction to the subject, but it needs to be different. It has to be unique. And I thought about that for a while. I, you know, at first I thought, well, I can't do that. It's already been done to death. And then I realized, again, my, my little girl Poppy uh, loves Greek mythology. And so when I ran out of stories to tell her about Greek mythology, um, and by the way, when she goes to school, the other kids are talking about who their favorite superhero is, and it'll be Batman <laughs> or Spider-Man, and Poppy will tell them her favorite hero is Hercules. Like, she's a huge fan of Hercules. Right, So uh, <laughs> I kind of infected her with my interest in <laughs> Greek culture. So I, I, I realized I started telling her stories about Greek philosophers. There are many anecdotes about Socrates and Diogenes the Cynic in particular, and they all have little morals to them or messages about the, the, the nature of philosophy. And, you know, we learn about ancient philosophy from Plato's dialogues, from other philosophical dialogues, from letters and essays and lectures. But we also learn a lot about ancient philosophy from these little anecdotes. And some of them actually come from satires or plays about uh, philosophers and comedy plays uh, making fun of philosophers in some cases and in particular for example Diogenes the cynic we don't have any writings from him everything we know about him is in the form of anecdotes 
like this, there's a famous anecdote that Alexander the Great was passing him by one day and Diogenes lived in poverty. He was like a renunciate. He lived naked in a, a, a kind of tub, a, a large ceramic jar, actually, where he, he, he went <laughs> for shade. And uh, Alexander, who was the most powerful man in the world, uh, approached him and, and said, is there anything I can do for you? And the story goes, Dad, and he said, yeah, can you step out of the way? You're blocking the sunlight. <laughs> and that, that was all he wanted them to do. So the, there are lots of little anecdotes like that that are kind of mm. famous in some cases. And yeah. I thought, well, in the ancient world, philosophy was taught through these little stories, and that was how I used to teach it to Poppy. And so I thought, could I write a book about Stoicism that takes the form of stories and anecdotes about uh, the Stoics and also the philosophers like Diogenes and Socrates that the Stoics were inspired by? And uh, I realized, well, we don't know much. We know a few stories about Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, but, but not a lot. The Stoic we know most about is Marcus Aurelius, who is the last famous Stoic. Stoicism survived for 500 years in the ancient world. Zeno founded the school in Athens in 301 BC, and the last famous Stoic we know about is the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, Roman Emperor, and one, he died in 180 AD. And after that, virtually nothing. It goes silent. And eventually Christianity kind of came along and sort of suppressed the pagan schools of philosophy. But uh, Marcus Aurelius we know a lot about because mm. he was a big deal. He was uh, the most powerful man in the world. And so we have archaeological evidence about his reign, but we have several uh, surviving Roman histories of his reign, Cassius Dio, uh, Herodian, the Historia Augusta, and we have his meditations. It's one of the most famous self-help or spiritual texts of all time. Mm. Uh, it's his personal journal or diary of his psychological exercises in, in Stoicism. So we have this kind of inner journal that tells about his, his inner psychological or philosophical transformation, and we also have the outer story, of his reign as an emperor. And uh, I wanted to combine those two things together. It frustrated me that biographies of Marcus Aurelius, of which there are actually many, usually don't say that much about his philosophy. You know, they talk about the outer story of his reign, and that would be like telling the story of somebody who was a devout Christian without ever mentioning Christianity. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about Marcus's reign and his actions and his character, but explain it in terms of his philosophical outlook and his Stoic values. Right. And I wanted to use events from his reign to illustrate some of the, the Stoic techniques and strategies that he was employing. So how to think like a Roman emperor tells the story of his life, and it uses stories, real stories, about the events in his life to illustrate Stoic psychological and philosophical concepts. And so each chapter is kind of divided into three parts. There's a story about events in his reign, and then it goes, progresses, it kind of segues into the, discussing the philosophy in more depth. And then that kind of segues into talking about uh, modern psychology, mainly cognitive behavioral therapy, and what guidance that gives us today about how to actually apply similar techniques in daily life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is there, is there an idea from the book that you could share, or, or could you share an idea from the book that, that would be useful for a, a hypnotherapist to know about or, or apply in some way? Well, there's a, the easiest answer to that, in a sense, is that, and, and as an aside, you know, each of those chapters kind of focuses on a different theme, like anger management, anxiety, pain management, dealing with desires and so on. But the two main things that Marcus Aurelius happens to talk about are coping with pain and illness and anger management, incidentally. So uh, anger management mm. was a, a 
one of the major interests of the Stoics. We have an entire book by Seneca that survives today called On Anger. And it's also one of the major themes in Marcus's meditations. At one point, he actually gives us a, a bullet point list of 10 separate psychological strategies. He lists out 10 distinct psychological strategies that the Stoics use for coping with anger. But the technique that I usually talk to therapists about is a more general Stoic technique. And it's called the view from above by modern scholars. And uh, the reason I'm interested in it is that when I was teaching hypnotherapists and psychotherapists, um, uh, I was kind of a techniques guy. I, you know, my, my main focus was in cataloging lots of different techniques from lots of different branches of psychotherapy. Because hypnotherapy has loads of techniques and CBT mm. has loads of techniques as well. And I, I combined hypnosis and CBT, so lots of different techniques to discuss. And that's what people often want to learn about anyway, the practical yeah. side of things. So there was one technique that's in the Stoics. You, my, my book, The Philosophy of CBT, was about the parallels in theory and technique. And, and there are lots of techniques that the Stoics use that are similar to techniques that are used in CBT or in hypnotherapy. But there was one that's not really common. You might find a few kind of instances of it, but not particularly common in modern psychotherapy, but it was a big one in the ancient world. And so I wondered, is this still relevant today? And so it was easy for me to write a script of it and get people to do it in my classroom and get clients to do it. And I, I noticed the, the view from above, which I'll explain in a moment. You know, the first time I did it, I thought, how are people going to respond to this? Like, they, they, Marcus Aurelius in particular goes on about it a lot, and, and other ancient philosophers did. But is it still relevant today? And as soon as I got people to do it, they immediately related to it. And they kind of thought, why aren't we doing this? Why isn't this a common technique in modern psychotherapy? It's kind of puzzling in a way. It's one of the big major techniques in ancient philosophy that just got kind of forgotten somehow. And someone's going to put their hand up and say, hang on a minute, there is an example of this in some obscure psychotherapy book, but it's not a common <laughs> technique in modern psychotherapy, I, I promise you. And so the, the view from above Essentially, there are two forms of it. So one I call the Olympian perspective. And it's just like you've seen in all those old movies, like Clash of the Titans, there'll be Zeus and he'll be looking down from Olympus at mankind and there'll be little chess pieces to him or whatever. And so it's the kind of view of the Olympian gods looking down on Athens or looking down on mankind from high above, a kind of helicopter perspective. And so that's one way of doing it. And the, actually, the most famous example we have comes from not a Stoic, but a Platonist philosopher who was very well-informed about Stoicism and, and, and very interested in Stoics, called Cicero. Mm. And Cicero wrote a book called The Republic, and there's a famous section of it called The Dream of Scipio Africanus, which is one of the most famous textual passages in the ancient world. And it tells the story of a Roman general falling asleep uh, in in Africa, uh, actually it was before he became a general, but he dreamt that he was ascending into the heavens and looking down on Carthage and Rome, who were at war, and viewing Africa and Europe from this uh, perspective among the stars and how this gave him a, a broader perspective and a sense of tranquility about things and helped him to cope with the stresses of war until eventually the Romans defeated Carthage and so on. But uh, this, that's one perspective in the view from above. And then the other one is even broader, and I call it a cosmological perspective. Whenever yeah. ancient philosophers are discussing cosmology, they're kind of doing this as a contemplative practice. So Marcus talks about imagining the whole of space and time. 
So imagining the present moment is just like the turn of a screw within the vastness of cosmic time, the lifespan of the whole universe. And imagining your current situation is like a tiny speck of dust within the, the vastness of the cosmos as a whole of cosmic space. And of course, nobody can imagine that, but we can touch upon the idea of it. And the Stoics thought that Zeus saw everything, the whole of space and time. So to even get a kind of glimpse of that, to even aspire to this perspective, in a sense, is to enter into the mind of God. It's a sort of mystical experience. And the Stoics thought this is something we should be aspiring to elevate ourselves to, to broaden our perspectives, brings us closer to the perspective of the divine. But they also realized it had many therapeutic benefits that, and, you know, I link it to some uh, something that's very familiar in modern research and, and psychopathology and psychotherapy, which is we know that when people are distressed, particularly when they're angry or anxious, um, there's a, a been a lot of research over the past 10 years or so, not just on cognition, but on attention, the allocation of attention. And we know that when people are distressed, they tend to narrow their focus of attention. So normally people can walk and chew gum. They can think about several things at once, right? Yeah. You know, the, the classic formula is seven plus or minus two things at a time we can juggle. But when people are, are very angry or very anxious, they can only really think about one or two things at a time. The uh, cognitive load is increased, their attentional allocation is reduced, and their attention becomes like a laser beam focused on threat. And one of the downside of that is it leads to selective attention and selective thinking. It amplifies the sources of threat in our mind. And, you know, that might be okay if you're a caveman and there's a saber-toothed tiger on the horizon. You want to concentrate on it, you know, because it's an imminent danger. But if you're just generally worrying about life, if you suffer from generalized anxiety disorder, and, you know, you, you're, you're kind of... A, people say, you know, where were you? You're, you're, you're not really paying attention to what's going on. You seem very distracted because you're worrying about stuff all the time. It's not healthy for you to be in that state of narrowly focused attention when you don't really need to be in it. And so the Stoics are constantly encouraging themselves to broaden the scope of their attention, which we know is something that tends to be associated with relaxed and happy and positive frames of mind when people are being more creative. So, you know, there may be a, a negative part of the situation that you're in but if you widen your attention the impact that that has emotionally kind of gets diluted because it becomes just one stimulus alongside dozens of other stimuli whereas if you allow yourself to focus on it like a laser beam you mag it's like you're putting it under a magnifying glass you know and one small negative detail can suddenly you know spoil your whole day as it were but if you can train yourself to acknowledge that's still there but be aware of other things alongside it you, you're not denying it, you're not suppressing it, you're still acknowledging the negative thing, but the emotional impact is less. And I like to say it's been kind of diluted. Like, And the Stoics would say that's a more realistic perspective because you're placing things in the natural context. Whereas when you focus too narrowly on things, it's kind of like you're committing a lie of omission because you're taking things out of context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. Um... Um, Donald, t t tell us, wh where can people go to learn more about your work um, and your latest book and, and so on? Well, I mean, the, the books, um, I've written six books on, on psychology and uh, or psychotherapy and philosophy. So you, you can get all of those on Amazon or wherever. Uh, my website is just donaldrobertson.name, not .com, but .name. So just my name, all Donald one Robertson word. Donald Robertson.name. Yeah. .name. And if they go there, they, they, there are lots of articles, and I, I have a lot of e-learning courses. 
Um, I just did one about stoicism being used for pain management. So it has audio recordings of exercises. And that's free. It's called the Crash Course in Stoic Pain Management, if anyone wants to look at that. And there's lots of other free courses. My, the, so my e-learning website is just the same, but it's a different subdomain. It's learn.donaldrobertson.name. So if anyone wants to go there and check out, they'll find a lot of resources there. But also, I'd encourage people to check out the Modern Stoicism website. So Modern Stoicism is a non-profit organization. It was founded by Christopher Gill, who's Professor Emeritus of Ancient Thought at Exeter University in England. It was founded in 2012, and I, I, I'm one of the members. There's about half a dozen of us who are authors or experts in Stoicism. And we have a multidisciplinary team made up of psychologists, therapists, classicists, philosophers. And so we, we the nonprofit runs events and distributes information about using stoicism in daily life. We run an event every year called Stoic Week. It's a free online course. It usually runs in October each year. Last year, 8,000 people all around the world took part in it. So if people want to wow. check out modernstoicism.com, you know, they'll find a lot of articles there over 500 articles from different people in all walks of life using stoicism and uh you know you'll find out about the conferences and the courses that modern stoicism run yeah yeah great that that, that there will be links to to all of those sites um over at this uh this episode's page of the hypnosis weekly website or if you're listening at itunes um, um they'll be in the edition notes so um, um you go click on those go and explore some of those areas um, um, Donald, I, I could genuinely just just keep asking you stuff that we have not prepared for in the slightest because I have I, I have so much more that I would just I, I love listening to you. Um, 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 but 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 all that's left for me to say uh, is thank you, thank you for being so generous with your time, with the information that you share, and for being this week's guest on the Hypnosis Weekly podcast. Well, thanks very much, Adam, for giving me the opportunity to talk to your listeners about my, my two favourite subjects. <laughs> yeah, great. Thank you. Ah, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I really enjoyed that. I, I spent some brief time um, catching up with Donald after the recording and speaking to him off air. And, and he's someone that I find to be, you know, incredibly inspirational. After after training with him all those years ago, um, I used to seek his advice and counsel on, on many matters regarding hypnosis and hypnotherapy to the point whereby I probably became a nuisance. Yet yet he continued to be so patient and, and was a great role model for me with regards to, 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 to my own training and teaching role today. Um, um, so next up, um, um, we're going to have, you know, next up, we're, we're, we usually have our hypnosis in the news story. I, I'm, whereas today I, I'm talking about something that I recently recorded a video um, I'm on over at the Hypnosis Geek YouTube channel. Um, I'm, I'm all about subliminal messages and subliminal hypnosis recordings and, and answering this popular question that I get asked about whether they work and if there's any evidence to support this kind of thing. Um um, and, and, and I've discussed the subject online and I thought I'd relay some of some of, you know, some of my thoughts on this um, um, today in today's episode. One of the problems that us 
hypnosis professionals face, I think, is that popular perception often associates hypnosis with subliminal messaging. And also lots of hypnosis professionals and hypnotherapists sell subliminal recordings or promote ideas of subliminal messaging and relate it to and draw parallels with hypnosis. Um, As with so much popular psychology, the field of hypnosis and hypnotherapy is rife with misinformation and falsehoods. You know, I I speak about that most weeks here on this podcast. Um, Despite us having, you know, a lot of of credible evidence, you know, we can always do with more um, um, and, and research to draw upon to support our field. You know, I, I recognise, though, that that would require um, 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 us actually reading more books and examining journals and so on. That there are still many who insist upon perpetuating nonsense instead, a nonsense that, that, that is a lot easier to engage with and read. Um, 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 and, it's, and it sort of finds its way getting forged in, in the everyday culture of, of the hypnosis field and the frontline hypnosis field in, in particular. So with reference to this, this, this sort of opening question, you know, subliminal messages, subliminal recordings, do they work? You know, the, the short answer is, is, is no. There's, there's really a major lack of evidence to prove that subliminal messages or subliminal recordings work. But that would probably make for a rather unsatisfactory ending um, um, to that. So let, let, me, let me speak a little bit more um, on this subject. The, the kind of Bible for advocates of subliminal advertising is, is a book that was written back in 1974 by Wilson Brian Key entitled Subliminal Seduction. And this very successful book, you know, I mean, sales-wise successful, led many to believe that the advertising industry were subliminally influencing the public. You know, but what about the evidence to support this book's findings? In the 1950s, a market research consultant called James Vickery installed a special projector inside a New Jersey cinema for a period of about six weeks. And he flashed certain marketing messages onto the screen for less than three one-hundredths of a second and not enough time for people to consciously recognise or register the message. And this happened continually throughout the entire film that was being shown. The subliminal messages said, drink Coca-Cola and hungry, eat popcorn. Vickery showed that during the films he'd flashed the subliminal messages onto the screen, sales of Coca-Cola rose by an average of 18% and sales of popcorn rose by 58%. It got lots of press, the media sensationalised it and it got discussed in psychology classes even. Um, so, So there's our evidence. Why are you disputing subliminal messaging, Adam? Well, you know, Vickery was asked to replicate his research in controlled conditions by Harcourt assessment. And under controlled conditions, there were absolutely no sales increases at all. When he was then asked to comment upon this, Vickery came clean. He confessed that he had falsified the results from his original study. Furthermore, in a 1962 interview with Advertising Age, Vickery explained that he had never conducted the original New Jersey experiment at all. It was all made up and the damage had been done, you know, but by then the damage had been done. And, And today, but people still believe in subliminal messaging. You know, um, um, 
one of my favourite films ever, you know, perpetuates that myth, sadly. Um, Brad Pitt plays character Tyler Durden in the film Fight Club, and he explains that when he was working as a film projectionist, he would intentionally add fleeting pictures of penises into films. And although the messages were imperceptible to, to the cinema goer, uh, the film pans around and focuses on a couple getting hot and steamy while watching his edited film, um, implying that subliminal messages were influencing them and their libidos, you know. Um, anyway, any any potentially positive research findings related to subliminal messages in other studies tend to have the results attributed to placebo and expectation. Um, the same can be said of those people who state that they've derived some benefit from listening to subliminal recordings. As, as a hypnotherapist, you know, it would be remiss of me to, to not mention one very powerful additional explanation. Suggestion. Um, suggestion. You know, if I create an audio program stating that it uses subliminal messages to help you lose weight, you are most likely to report that it helped you lose some weight. You know, more so than if you had no idea what it was supposed to be for. You know, um, you're to say, well, well, it didn't affect my weight, but I found myself stopping smoking. You know, it's unlikely that's going to happen. The, the suggestion given with the title, you know, the aim of the track, accompanied by believable pseudoscience, placebo effect, and the expectancy created, you know, heck, we all know about the power of expectancy, um, um, all, the, the, it all potentially combines to deliver the outcome that's being suggested. You know, I wonder if I gave that audio track or that audio program designed to help someone lose weight that had subliminal messages on it to create that effect, but did not tell anyone what it was for, just asked them to report their findings. How many do you think would be able to know that the track was aimed at doing um, or, you know, what it was aimed at doing or, or, or would report that they actually lost weight? Alleged subliminal audios are thought to work by playing messages so audibly low that a person cannot consciously perceive it. Subliminal means, you know, below the threshold of conscious perception. So for any message to be truly subliminal, it must not be consciously detectable. The bottom line is that if it's not consciously detectable, it is not influencing or affecting you in any beneficial way. If you're going to have to choose between subliminal recordings and using your own affirmations, for example, use affirmations. Even better, you know, learn Emil Kuwe's methods of making affirmations um, um, or auto-suggestions even more effective. Um, um, or learn effective self-hypnosis uh, to really take it up another level. You know, um, I'm, I'm aware of a very, very good book on that subject, you know, The Science of Self-Hypnosis, awesome author. Um, so you can rest assured subliminal advertisements and subliminal messages do not work. You are safe. In numerous carefully controlled laboratory trials, subliminal messages did not affect subjects' choices or preferences. And when tested in the real world, the subliminal messaging failed. If you look at peer-reviewed credible evidence, subliminal recordings are not supported in the slightest. Um, um, the brilliant podcast Skeptoid um, um, offered some coverage of subliminal seduction. Um, um, and when researching the subject matter, they, they, they reported on a, a 2007 study from the University of California, Davis. And they stated, I shall read, 
The findings, surprisingly, were that subliminal sexual images had no effect on men and actually produced lower levels of sexual arousal in women. Neither group went out and bought popcorn or Pepsi. The conclusion suggests that the subliminal sexual prime causes women to activate sex-related mental contents, but to experience the result as somewhat aversive. Not really a great advertising strategy. Um, In their 2009 book, I mean a brilliant book, 50 Great Myths of Popular Psychology, Shattering Widespread Misconceptions About Human Behaviour, author Stephen J. Lynn and colleagues, they dispel the myth of subliminal messages um, really comprehensively. They cite the 1958 Canadian Broadcasting Corporation experiment whereby the audience was advised that a subliminal advertisement would be tested during a Sunday night television show. The words phone now were flashed upon the screen 352 times throughout the television show, yet the telephone company's records showed that there was no increase um, um, in, in phone calls whatsoever. As I say, it seems entrenched in popular psychology, and I'm guessing that hypnotherapists of a certain ilk will not stop selling subliminal wares any time soon. I mean, if it was used by President Al Gore in his 2000 advertising campaign, um, 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 he he flashed the word rats on screen when referring to uh, his political opponents, apparently, Uh, then it's reached some lofty heights of awareness, hasn't it? Um, But perhaps realising this is nothing more than a great conspiracy means that we can actually all take our foil hats off now when we're watching the television. Um, finally this week, um, I'm, I'm talking about our, our evidence-based hypnosis factoid. Um, 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 and, and that is that, that hypnosis has provided a better understanding of, 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 of the way in which delusions over hypnotic sex change have been, have been carried out. Um, McConkie, Seps and Barnier, back in 1997, um, um, created a study examining hypnotically induced uh, um, hypnotic sex change and participants were given suggestions for a change of sex whilst hypnotised um, um, and compared that with, with just using imagination and they indexed the subject's experiences with a continuous concurrent behavioural measure that involved them turning a dial to indicate changes in the strength of the suggested effect. In addition, the researchers indexed the participants' experiences through some retrospective ratings of realness, involuntariness and active thinking. So the dial rating showed that the onset of the experience was much more rapid for hypnotic than for imagination experiences and And moreover, there were differences in the relationship between dial ratings and retrospective ratings across the conditions, as well as across the suggestion, the test and the cancellation phases of the item. The findings you know, provide a better understanding of suggested hypnotic sex change, as well as a better understanding of the private experience of both hypnosis and imagination. It makes for some for some fascinating reading, um, especially in combination with some of the, the studies about hypnotically induced delusions that I've spoken about um, um, in, 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 in recent episodes. Um, um, there's a link to that research paper included on this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website, And again, you know, if you follow me on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, you can find masses of memes related to a variety of studies whereby hypnosis has been examined. 
And that's it for this week's 111th edition. Um, I, I, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found it stimulating. Um, I've got many more exciting guests that I'll be welcoming to Hypnosis Weekly in coming editions. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all, remaining friends. Next time out, I'm going to be speaking to a good friend of mine um, based over in Denmark, uh, Michael Belligianis. Um, um, and um, I'm really looking forward to sharing that with you. All the references made in the discussion along with related links are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website www.hypnosis-weekly.com I always welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions so do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website I'll make sure that they get addressed, answered and explored accordingly Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else and really help us reach the hypnosis field My thanks again go to the wonderful Donald Robertson My thanks to you for tuning in My name is Adam Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.